Well, I trust you all have your Christmas decorations up already. We have had a uh, fun time dealing with a water leak, which we uh, happened when? October 30th? And we just got everything patched and painted yesterday, and we're done. So we stayed up late last night and got all our Christmas decorations up late. So um, our kids slept under the tree last night. you got to love it. <clears throat> it's that time of the year where, you know... Um, uh, both Santa and parents are making their list and checking it twice. Um, Talked to somebody this morning, does all their shopping online, and they're done. I'm envious. Um, it, it sometimes seems like pre- preparation for the holiday season and all that that entails makes life really busy, but it's fun. I asked this question this morning. What's the, what's the best gift you've ever gotten? When you ask the question, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? What's the best gift you've ever gotten? Now, I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that a little bit. I know, I, know the, um, I know the best gift I've ever given. It was an engagement ring. There was just a little bit invested in that, you know. I was pretty certain she would say yes. Uh, the dramatic pause gave me some concern um, after I got down on the knee and asked the question. But there was both a lot emotionally and there was a lot financial. I've never spent that kind of money, you know. Um, so it was, a, it was a big deal, you know. What makes a gift really significant is a couple of things. It, it may not be anything that you actually unwrap. It may be the gift of a relationship, you know, kind of what I talk about when I talk about marriage. Um, it may be the gift of the relationship in parenting or a gift uh, of relationship with a very dear friend. It might be something that um, it just means something, something that just really is an investment of a lot of time and consideration. Um, you know, probably one of the most important, uh, one of the most significant gifts I've gotten, uh, Marcy threw a surprise party for me, which that doesn't sound like a big deal. I've never been surprised about anything hardly ever in my life. I always figure it out. I always know it's coming. And my kids and my parents knew about it, and none of them can keep a secret. So the fact that they, they did that and pulled it off, I was like, all right, I got to give props for, you know, actually pulling off the surprise party. That was pretty cool. And there were church people involved who lied to me. You can repent at the end of the service, okay? You were in cahoots about that. And so, you know, the truth is there, there are gifts that mean something to us, even if they never get under a tree and they're never tied up with a bow. There are gifts that we have. As we continue through our series uh, entitled The King and the Cradle, This morning, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. And throughout the book of Hebrews, uh, the phrase better, B-E-T-T-E-R, occurs 13 times. And the entire point of the entire book of Hebrews is that Christ is better. Everything that God has given, Christ is better. So he is better than the law. He is better than Moses. He is better than angels. He is better than the sanctuary. He He is a better rest than the sabbath he has a better atonement he has a better blood than the blood of bulls and goats he is better and so this morning as we think about the christmas season as we think about uh, what it means to uh, appreciate a gift friends this morning i I know that a crowd like this doesn't need a lot of convincing about this but jesus is the best gift that god can give to us he is uh, superlative he is the uh, ultimate that he can give. And so this morning, you have an outline in your bulletin. Um, it's, it's a fairly extensive outline. Um, we, we're going to zoom through this a little bit because 
Uh, it kind of wraps up in point number four, and uh, we'll, we'll spend a little more time there, and we'll kind of zoom through the first couple of points. But we'll be in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. If you don't have a copy of uh, your own copy of the Scriptures, the Bible in front of you in the pew, page 888, you'll be able to find uh, Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> and when we talk about Christ being better, there are three ways specifically that the author of the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus being better today. We're going to start off with verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 1. Scripture says this, Long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The point that they're making here is that Christ is the pinnacle of revelation. Christ is better than what we had gotten before. If, you, if we were going to um, draw a um, topographical map, that's the map with bumps on it. It shows mountain ranges and valleys. If we were going to draw a topographical map of biblical revelation, there'd be a lot of things that would make it. Um, there's a new movie out, Gods and Kings, talking about the Exodus. How did, how did God reveal himself there? Burning bush, that would be a mountain peak. Um, parting of the Red Sea, that would be a mountain peak. Sustaining God's people for 40 years in the wilderness with water from a rock and manna from heaven, that would be a peak in the mountain range. But what it's saying here is that God spoke in a variety of different ways. And there's all kinds of contrasts that are drawn up here. There is the contrast of the time of revelation. Long ago versus in these last days. There's the contrast of recipients. God spoke to our fathers, our forefathers. He's spoken to us today in these last days. There's the contrast of agency or mode. God spoke by prophets previously, but he's spoken to us now by a son. And what they're saying is that whatever, whatever um, peaks make it in your map of how God has revealed himself throughout history, the Mount Everest of God's revelation is what he has done in the incarnation in Christ. You don't get any bigger than that. Now, that doesn't mean that if Mount Everest is it, it's, it's, the, it's the, the big one, it's the most important one, that doesn't mean that everything that came before it is unimportant. Don't hear it like that. I think sometimes as Americans, we're super, super pragmatic. And we go, all right, we got the Mount Everest, we can deal with it, we can forget the rest of the range. That's not true. Now, it is true that what the author to Hebrews is doing is drawing this great contrast between how God worked in the Old Testament and how God works in the New Testament. It says in the Old Testament, God spoke in a variety of different ways, and he used different means. We've talked about some of them. Burning bushes, parting Red Seas. Um, he's spoken directly. Do you imagine what it would be like to hear the voice of God? You'd be in a minority. Not many people have heard that. He spoke through burning bushes. <clears throat> Christ actually took on human form and appeared in the Old Testament. When Abraham and Sarah were told that they were going to have a child, it says that God actually came down and had dinner with them, and he had two people with him, two angelic beings that visited him. We call that a theophany or a Christophany. It is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. that He actually directly appeared to them and spoke with them kind of face-to-face as a man. It's crazy stuff. He's spoken through dreams and visions. He's spoken through still small voices. He's spoken through angels. Uh, The priests would cast lots, and they would use these things called the Urim and the Thummim. And when they would cast lots, they would believe that however the dice rolled, that God actually controlled the outcome. So which way do we go? Do we go left or do we go right? Let's cast the Urim and the Thummim. It says go right. We believe that God controlled the outcome, so we're going to go that way. 
And what they're saying is there's all kinds of diverse and crazy ways that God has spoken in the past. But if we want to hear God clearly, listen to Jesus. This is the most important way. As a matter of fact, the way that God has spoken to us in Christ means that all other revelation is secondary. Jesus, in his communication, is superior to the prophets. There were lots that God had to say in the Old Testament, and there were lots of different ways that he said it. But all of the things that he revealed in the Old Covenant do not add up to the fullness of revelation that we have in Christ Jesus. So this does not mean that everything behind us was unimportant. Because think about this for a second. Uh, Parents, you'll be able to identify with this, and we've got a few teachers in the audience too. If you're going to teach your kid how to read, where do you start? You don't start with hooked on phonics, okay? Now, you want to get there quick, but you don't start there. You start all the way over here with the alphabet. And you go, all right, I learned the ABC song, and that teaches me how to read. No. But without that, you won't know how to read. Why? Because you've got to understand letters if words are ever going to make sense. And then once you understand letters and you can intelligent, intelligently, intelligibly understand words, what happens? You get to put those words together into sentences. And now the boy ran. You know, uh, what's the subject? What's the predicate? You can start to put things together. And you can start to communicate. And once you get sentences, then you get paragraphs. And once you get paragraphs, you get short stories, little golden books. And then eventually you graduate to novels. And so if God, in his process of revealing himself to us over here, when we're on the alphabet of learning about who God is, gave us a 968-page James Michener novel and says, here, you want to know about me? Here it is. We'd be like, what do we even do with this? We we don't even know alphabet, let alone words, let alone novels. And here's the point. The Old Testament is not unimportant because there are ways progressively and phase by phase that God reveals more and more of himself. Do you think Adam knew everything about God? No. Do you think Abraham or Moses did? No. Moses even said, there's one coming after me that's greater than I that will be another like me, but greater than me. Abraham knew that there was some seed that was going to come from him that was really going to bring everything climactically together, and we see that in Christ. And so Christ is the culmination of everything that happens in the Old Testament. It has been revealed progressively and with greater clarity, and we finally get the full picture when we get to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that the prophets were untrue. They were true. What they were was incomplete. They were partial. They were true in what they affirmed. But it's kind of like, um, guys, you'll, you'll be able to identify with this. When you're shaving in the morning, okay? You just took a hot shower, and that mirror's all fogged up, okay? Uh, and your wife gets mad at you because you've, you've messed up the bathroom now. You can't see in the mirror. What do you do? Do you, do you dry off the whole mirror? No. Typically, what you do is just wiki, 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 wiki. You get a little spot that you're, you can see your face in, so you can do a, little, do a, a, a lot of shaving or a little shaving in my, in my case. Um, it's the same thing on a cold morning. You know, if your car's not in a garage, you either, like, crank the car up half an hour early, crank on the defroster, and it's ready to go. Or if you forget to do that, you get your little ice wedge out, and you do this little, like, three-by-three three little thing that you can see out of, so you can drive down the road. Don't do that. And the point is that the prophets saw accurately. They just didn't see the whole picture. And so 
Christ is the pinnacle. I love the way that it's, it's, it's said when we talk about the relationship between the Old and the New Testament, that the new in the old is concealed, but the old in the new is revealed. I like that. The New Testament makes greater sense when we understand it in the light of the Old Testament. And the best way for us to understand the New Testament is to have a thorough understanding of the Old Testament. That's what the entire book of Hebrews is about, is explaining how Christ is a better priest, how he offers a better offering, how there is a better blood that's involved. And so Christ is better, and the revelation that he gives is complete and perfect and true. And the next two points... The author to the Hebrews is really trying to do two, two things, and it's a little bit of a play on words. And if you were listening closely when the, when the Nakonis read their scripture passage, when, when Gabriel showed up and appeared to Mary, <clears throat> he said two things that I think sometimes, like in church speak, we just kind of gloss over it. He said, Mary, uh, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to bear a child, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Son of God. And he says, and I will give him the throne of his father, David. How's Jesus got two daddies? And so he's going to talk about this in these next two points, and I'm not going to be able to cover it when we're dealing with this much scripture. I cannot cover it in as much detail as I would like to. Um, But he goes in point two, and he demonstrates that Jesus is the unique son of God. That's his point in point two. In point three, he's going to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures and how he is the son of David. And these two go together. Now, he does something really cool. Under point two, he gives seven character affirmations to affirm that Jesus is the son of God. In point three, he gives seven Old Testament quotes to prove that Jesus is the son of David. So there's this beautiful symmetry. If you like to study the scriptures, you have seven character affirmations, seven scripture quotations. We're not going to have all the time to kind of jump into this with both feet. We're just going to kind of hit the highlights here. But under point two, Christ is the unique son of God. One of the things that's interesting, verses one through four, uh, we're going to look at verses two through four in a second, but the entire first four verses in the Greek are one big sentence. Now, in your Bible, you probably got a couple periods and colons and semicolons and commas in there. In the Greek, it's one sentence, and it's a mouthful. And basically, what it says is that Jesus makes the invisible God visible. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. He is his son. So listen to what it says, beginning in verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things, and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, so he became higher in rank than the angels, just as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. Guys, that is a mouthful. Verse 3 is hugely important in our understanding of who Jesus is. But what does this say? It says that, uh, firstly, Jesus is the divine heir of all things. The heir is the one who gets everything because of family lineage. He is the heir. Now, this doesn't mean that there is God the Father is really God and God the Son is secondary. That's not it at all. It means that uh, Jesus has an inherent dignity and greatness that he 
inherits everything. And I love the way that it's stated in the scripture. He gets everything because he made everything. He is the divine heir, but he's also the divine creator. Now, usually when the Bible talks about um, God creating the world, the word that is used is a word you would recognize. He created the cosmos. That's the Greek word usually used for word. Here, it's not that word. It's the word ionos, which means ages or eons. He is the creator of the eons. So everything that ever was, not just right now, but ever, he created all of that. All of history, all of time, all of creation. That's a mind-boggling thing to think about. What, what, how did you tell time before time existed? Um, I'll leave that kind of mental nugget with you. You guys can figure that one out. Talk about that at lunch. But it says he's the creator of all things. He made the ages. And then verse 3 is huge because it says not only is he the divine heir, the divine creator, he is the divine revealer. Did you see how verse 3 said it? It said the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. He reveals God's glory. Uh, the, word for, uh, that, the word for that revealing is the Greek word character. He displays his nature, his character. And it says that he is the exact imprint of his nature. If you wanted to photocopy God, Jesus would be it. Not in uh, imitation, but in essence. It says he is exactly identical to God. Whatever it, whatever it is that makes in substance that makes God God, that's him. He is the precise expression of who God is. He is exactly like him. That's a hugely important statement because this is, what, this is who we're talking about in the manger. This, this child, you know, I don't know that he, when you see these nativity scenes, you see this kind of glow around the manger. I don't know that Jesus really glow in the, glowed in the dark, but he expressed the glory of God and that glory uh, was not necessarily announced with fanfare and golden glitter. It was humble. And that's what makes the incarnation just such a mind-boggling thing, that God, in the person of Christ, manifested himself, became a man, and was born under the humble circumstances that he was. This is the one who is the exact imprint of his nature, and he's born as a baby that's heralded by no one but angels. Nobody else has a clue what God is doing, except for Mary and Joseph and a couple of shepherds. And that's how God the God of the universe, comes into our world. Well, not only is he the divine revealer, he's the divine sustainer. It says that he upholds everything by the power of his word. We're told that he's the divine redeemer who purifies from sin. That word for purify is the Greek word katharismos, um, uh, to, to have a heart catheterization, to have a cathartic moment, means kind of a purging. You're... you're um, Arteries are cleansed in a heart catheterization. They're expanded so the junk that's in there can kind of move through and the blood can flow appropriately. A person who's emotionally shut up, who finally the wall of formality breaks and they they kind of let their grief out or they let their joy out, that's called a cathartic moment. There's a purification that is happening. It says that's what God has done. He's our divine redeemer. I love the way, uh, I don't know who said this, but I love the way that this is said. If our greatest need was for information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need was for technology, God would have sent us an engineer. If our greatest need was for money, God would have sent an economist. And if our greatest need was for pleasure, God would have sent an entertainer. But because our greatest need is for forgiveness, he sent his son, whose express purpose in coming 
was to die on a cross for our sins. Guys, that's amazing. Because you see, God's idea behind the incarnation, when you get the full picture. So he is all of these things, heir, creator, revealer, sustainer, redeemer. And then the end of verse 3, it says he is a divine king who is now seated on a throne. His work is done, and he has sat down, and he is receiving worship because he is honorable, he has authority, and he is reigning on high. And the end result of all of this in verse 4 is that he has now received a divine name that is better than that of the angels. Now, for us to hear this word name doesn't mean a whole lot to us because we pick names because they sound cool. In the Old Testament, people pick names because names meant something. One of the things that we do whenever we do a baby dedication is we look up what's the etymology of the, the name. So that way, when we pray for kids, we kind of pray, what does their name mean? Like for Caleb, it means loyal one. It also means dog, but we don't talk about that much. Um, it means loyal one, you know. Um, for Kylie, it means kind of growing, growing herb, growing, uh, precious growing um, thing. Um, and so we pray through names based upon their meaning. And so when it says he has a name, that just doesn't mean like it's tattooed on his arm. It means that there's a meaning. He is Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he has inherited a name better than the angels. Now, has, has Jesus always had a name better than the angels? Yes. But in time and in space, as he chose to be incarnated and to act in this way, he's entered into a new phase of his ministry. We don't know a whole lot about Jesus until the incarnation. I mean, Jesus is alive and well and active in the Old Testament, but we don't see him clearly. And so once he enters into this new and public phase, we see his superiority because of his sonship. He is the son of God. But as we move into our third point, Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament, we see some things that are uh, interesting and helpful. These seven Old Testament quotes are wrapped in three proclamations that the Father says. If you read verses 5 through 14, you'll see it says, Has the Father ever said to angels? Has the Father ever said to angels? Has the Father ever said to angels? No, he only says it to his Son. And so there's three proclamations. Let me read verses 5 through 14, and then we'll explain these here a little bit. For to which of the angels? Verse 5. Did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have become your Father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and all of God's angels, angels must worship him. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the son, he says, your throne, God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy rather than your companions. And... In the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like a robe. But you are the same, and your years will never end. Now, to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? Three statements that the, father, that the Father makes. And the first is that Jesus is the royal son of David. Not only is he the uh, heavenly heir of all things, but he is the royal son of David. Now you're going to see a couple scripture passages pop up here. They're written um, in parentheses in your margin. Uh, and I'm, we're not going to take the time to read all of these. I put them up here word for word because I want you to see that the, the, the author of Hebrews, when he quotes the Old Testament... He doesn't paraphrase. He gets it word for word right. 
That's the purpose in throwing the scripture up here. It's not for you to write it all out. You're not going to be able to do it. We're not going to have enough time for you to write it every little word. But the references are there for you. So you go back and see, all right, how did, the old, how did the Old Testament say it? How does the author to Hebrews say it? But when he talks about Jesus being the royal son of David, he's referencing Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-11-16. through 16. And both of these scripture passages have to do with David's throne. David <clears throat> had ushered in peace in his kingdom. And as the, 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 the peace grew, prosperity grew, and David built himself a really nice palace. And he came to the realization that God was the one that had achieved all of these things through him, that he was just the tool that God used to achieve it. And he said, man, you know what? I'm living in a palace with nice wood, all these accoutrements. I need to build a house for God. I'm going I'm to build a place for, for God to live. And David said, uh, God said to David, you're a man of bloodshed. You're not going to do it. But I'm going to out-promise you. You're going to make a promise to me to build this house. I'm going to make a promise to you that your son will reign on your throne forever. Did Solomon accomplish that promise? Nope. As a matter of fact, Solomon was a tremendous disappointment. He ceased to be faithful to God. He turned away from him. And he ushered in the beginning of the loss of the kingdom. Under Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he did not stay faithful to God. And so when we talk about God speaking in, in, um, in many various and diverse ways to our fathers, I don't use the word forefathers. Forefathers is kind of a more modern day term. They refer specifically to people in the Old Testament as our fathers. And so what is happening is why was it important for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem uh, and have his lineage traced both through Mary and through Joseph is it, it is a fulfillment that God is establishing now David's true son on the throne. It's important that Jesus' lineage is traced out appropriately because God is keeping his promise to David. Now here's something that's really interesting. <clears throat> when we talk about Jesus being the son of God or the son of David, there's, uh, there's, there's some interesting things here. When did, um, when did Christ exist? Trick question. He's always existed. He's God. When did the Son exist? That's a little trickier. Because the Son, while predicted in the Old Testament, he's never called explicitly the Son in the Old Testament. It's a title. It's not a a thing of essence. Before the incarnation, Christ was Christ. But he was not the Son in earnest until his incarnation. So the title, Son, is exactly that. It's an incarnational title. Son has to do with his incarnation. Before his incarnation, he is the son of God, perpetually and eternally. But he becomes the son in his incarnation. It doesn't imply that the son doesn't exist. It is uh, talking again about this progressive unveiling of who God is and how he relates to humanity. So this is all used in relation to King David and his covenant heir, not Solomon, who proved unfaithful, but Jesus who proves to be David's true son. So Jesus is the son in two senses. He is the son of God. But in this passage specifically, he is the son of David. He goes on in his second proclamation is that uh, Jesus is worthy of worship. He references three Old Testament scriptures, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 104, and Psalm 110. And he says, angels, you have to worship this guy. This, this, This being, this son of David is no mere man because he's worthy of the angelic being's worship. Now, the angels are glorious beings. I think if we ever 
saw one who was not in disguise, it would probably be a very fearful and terrifying thing. They're glorious beings, but the sun is even more so. And that's why it said that the angels worship him. It goes on in verse 7, it says that his, his uh, servants are flames of fire. They are messengers. The angels are servants. Now, is the son a servant? Yes, the son serves God, the father. The son doesn't serve angels. The son serves the father. The angels serve the son, not vice versa. The angels are subordinate to him. And so they're demonstrating in verses 6 and 7, and in verses 13 and 14, that the son is worthy of worship. Verse 13 says... To what angel has God ever said, sit at my right hand? The answer, not one. Because servants don't sit on thrones, sons do. And so they're saying, this son, not only is he the son of David, but he is worthy of worship again because he is God. And then in verses 8 through 12 that we read just a few minutes ago, he talks about how this one is the eternal creator and one who has unchanging nature. It says that at the end of time, that the heavens will perish, that they will wear out like old clothes, that they'll be changed like a robe, but you are the same and your years will never end. God, you made it all. And God, you outlast it all. So in verses 1 through 4, it's demonstrated very clearly that, God, uh, that Jesus is God's only and unique son. In verses 5 through 14, it's demonstrated that Jesus is David's true son. In verses 1 through 4, he is the royal heir of all things. In verses 5 through 13, he's the royal son who will sit on David's eternal throne. In verses 1 through 4, we're told that he made the world and he upholds it by the power of his word. In verses 5 through 13, we're also told that he made heaven and earth and that he will outlast them because he's eternal. In verses 1 through 4, we're told that he's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. In verses 5 through 13, we're told that he's eternal, unchanging, unending. In verses 1 through 4, we're told that he sits at at God's right hand after he accomplished the purification from our sins. In verse 13... We're told that God tells him to sit at his right hand until his enemies are made a footstool. So whether we're talking about God and Jesus in verses 1 through 4, as God's son or 5 through 13, as David's son, this is all done for a very specific, distinct, and purposeful reason. At this point, we could stop and we go, you know what? God made everything. Um, God reveals things. And he is worthy of our worship. But we would stop short of what the, the Bible's revelation really is seeking to tell us. in in this beginning part of the book of Hebrews. And it's this, that Jesus didn't come simply to be admired in a cradle. He came to accomplish atonement on a cross. And so Hebrews doesn't stop here. As we we look at chapter 2, we see something interesting, that as the pinnacle of revelation, as the unique Son of God, as the fulfillment of the promises to the Son of David, as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scripture, as the creator and the one who is worthy of worship, Jesus comes to us as the promised Savior. Look with me at chapter 2. Two quick passages, and we'll be done. I love the way F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, says this, because he, he says essentially this, that when we think about God as the creator and sustainer of the universe, that will invoke in us a sense of wonder, Wow, can you imagine the power that God has to make all of this? But it will never um, 
inculcate a sense of obligation until we understand him as redeemer. You get that? There's a difference between being awed by God and going, wow, he's cool, and worshiping God because you sense personally what he has done for you. That's a paraphrase of the quote. But up to this point, we're talking about how big and how huge and how powerful God is, and wow, he's, he's awesome. Now we get to talk about what God in the incarnation was doing for us. What was the end game of the incarnation? Look at chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But we do see Jesus, who is made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. But his death was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering. When your hero dies, you don't usually talk about that as a glorious and honorable thing. It's usually a tragedy, a time of, of, of weeping. But it says that Jesus' death was not simply a death of his own, it was a death for all people. And that his death was crowned both with glory and with honor. Verses 14 through 18 of chapter 2. It says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear, he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested and has suffered, he is able to help those who are tested. The Bible says that the purpose of the incarnation is for Jesus to be a new and better and more faithful high priest who doesn't need to offer any offerings for his own sin. His whole purpose at offering a sacrifice for sin is for the benefit of the people who would believe in him, not for himself. And that through this priestly offering, who not only is he the priest, he himself is the sacrifice. He offers himself as the sacrifice. It says that he destroys death and the devil. And that by offering himself to die on a bloody cross, that he is the propitiation. That means wrath-bearing sacrifice. He bears the wrath of God revealed against sin so that everyone who believes in him will never have to face God's wrath. Friends, if we have disobeyed God, and we have, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God who judges with a perfect and holy judgment. And our judgment is anything but. And the Bible says... By trusting in Christ, Christ bears your wrath so that you do not have to. And I love the way it concludes. It says that because he has been tested and suffered, he can come to the aid of those who are tested and suffering. Is that a good word? To know that Jesus can relate to whatever the challenges are that you face in life. He understands what sin is because he's been tempted to sin. He never gave in, but he understands the power and the pull of sin. I conclude with a story. <clears throat> and it may be one that you've heard. It's not, a, it's not a true story. It's a fictional story. But it illustrates this purpose, that God at Christmas came to save. And he came to bear sin, and he came to identify with people so that he's not some airy-fairy God, but a flesh-and-blood reality. And it's a story that occurs at the end of time as the nations are gathered before God's throne for judgment. 
At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. All the groups near the front were talking heatedly and with belligerence, a very strange attitude for people standing before God's throne for judgment. How can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a brash young lady. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror. We endured beatings, torture, even death. In another group, an African-American boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes, age 13, said, Why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of little groups like this, complaining about God and his judgment. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God must be to live in heaven, where everything was sweet and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? God leads a pretty sheltered life, they concluded. So each of these groups sent forth a leader. And they were chosen because they had suffered the most. There was a Jew, an African American, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a leprous child. And in the center of this great plain, they consulted with each other. And at last, they were ready to present their clever case. Before God was qualified to be the judge, before God was qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think that he's out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. Let him see what it means to be terribly alone, and then let him die. And let him die in such a way that is so gruesome that there's no doubt that he died. And let there be a great host of witnesses to to verify this terrible death. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, there were loud murmurs of approval that went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing his sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, they all knew that God had already served his sentence. Friends, that's the truth that we proclaim at at Christmas, is that the God of the universe, who created everything and is due rightful worship, comes to his rebellious creation and becomes obedient by incarnating himself that he might die for people that don't even care about his death. And so this Christmas, as we think about the baby in the manger, let's remember that he's also the king in the cradle. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for this word. While we covered a lot of ground in two, two chapters of Scripture, it's important for us to understand, God, that when we think about Christmas and the, the gifts that you give, that more important than a new car or a Christmas cruise or a Christmas bonus or whatever we can wrap and put under a tree, the best gift that we can, we can possibly get 
is knowing that we are in a right relationship with you, that our sins have been fully taken care of. That God, there, there's nothing that we have to do. We don't have to perform. We don't have to, we don't have to do anything to be right with you. We simply have to receive the gift that you have given us in Christ. God, I pray that whether we, we know this truth and just aren't living it out, uh, God, give us the grace to repent and seek to live more clearly for Jesus. But God, if there are people here today that don't know that their sins have been taken care of, if they were to die today and stand before God and wonder on what basis would their judgment be affected, God, I pray that today you'll help them to understand that God came in Christ so that we don't have to bear the punishment for our sins. Help us to think rightly about these things and help us to learn to trust in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray.